Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR A55 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is now on Twitter. You can find it by searching Rad Philosophy on Twitter and clicking follow to follow up and keep updated with the show. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. And I'm Sandrine Berges from Bill Kent University, Ankara. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. E. Vincent about welfare reform. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Beth. So could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. Well, I'm a Melbourne person from back in the day and used to do a breakfast show on 3CR, I think, a very long time ago. I was involved in various, I guess, solidarity projects in Melbourne, beginning with the Jabaluka campaign and then getting involved in some issues in South Australia. And it was really that kind of background in solidarity activism that led me into some research into initially the relationship between environmentalists and Indigenous people. And then that project in turn evolved into work on native title, but work sort of examining the native title system or the creature that is native title rather than working within native title. And it was work that I think in a more kind of conceptual or philosophical sense was really about how Indigenous difference is governed by the settler colonial state. And the actual kind of day-to-day practical fieldwork for that also grew out of a, a kind of activist relationship that I enjoyed with a community or a family group based in Sejuna in the far west of South Australia. And that, that work turned into a book called Against Native Title, in quotation marks. So I try and explore why some people in that place have come to take up a position against Native Title. And so that's the research trajectory, I guess. I found a home within the academy in the Department of Anthropology at Macquarie University, um, and that's where I now work. Oh, that's great that you're an old 3CR person. That's wonderful you've gone on to further study. So what else was it that inspired you to study welfare reform? Well, the relationship between that past work that I'm talking about and my new research on welfare reform, it's sort of on two levels in a way. On a more conceptual level, I think there is a relationship between 
you know, my interest in settler colonial ways of governing Indigenous difference that stems from what we might see as more, you know, positive or recognition-based aspects of contemporary governance like land rights and native title to the question of welfare reform, which is also a question of sort of governing Indigenous community life and family life and Indigenous difference in, in a very kind of interventionary and a more apparently negative way. So there's that kind of conceptual link, theoretical link, but in a really kind of practical and everyday sense, it's serendipitous in a way because I had this relationship to the, some people in Sedruna. It's a community I really uh, enjoy spending time with. I like being out there. And I continued to visit after having sort of finished the uh, older work. And it was Sejuna, that town on the edge of the Nullarbor, that became the first trial site for the cashless debit card. So this is very much, I guess, the latest and I think the most radical iteration of the welfare reform agenda in Australia, which we might trace right back to uh, reforms beginning in the 1990s and this is just the latest uh, kind of chapter in, in a longer story. So could you tell us about the shift towards conditional welfare? <laughs> yeah, so this, I mean, this is a more global kind of story. I guess it's a story that, you know, the conventional narrative would be that and I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with this, that in the 1970s, uh, across the global north, we see a kind of shift in terms of the, you know, the phase of capitalism in those societies. So a shift to, from a kind of period, you know, the, a post-war period of stability in which there's kind of social contract in a way between labour, capital the unions, and then a shift into a new phase of capitalism, a shift to just-in-time production, to an emphasis on flexibility rather than stability, regularity, the movement of a lot of jobs in certain sectors offshore, the transformation of a lot of the jobs that remain into service sector work, into a very kind of feminised work. All these developments dovetail with second wave feminism in, in lots of really complex ways. Uh, and so work, the conditions of work in those global north societies, you know, begin to erode and become much more flexible, precarious, casual. Uh, th- this, these are the jobs that um, those societies move towards. And at the same time, as those jobs become... Uh, you know, less secure jobs, the welfare system underpinning those societies begins also to shift. It becomes uh, more punitive. It becomes less generous in a really basic way. And I think the, the amazing campaign to raise the rate has really highlighted that question of, of payment rates eroding over this period. And it also becomes more conditional. So the receipt of Social Security payments becomes much more conditional on workfare. 
is what it gets called in the sort of global literature. So Work for the Doll is the Australian iteration of that. It's, it's requiring people on social security benefits to do work-like activities in order to qualify for social security. Uh, and mutual obligation, the, the more sort of general rubric under which Work for the Doll falls might mean that you can satisfy those conditions through doing, you know, other kinds of activities like volunteering or study, etc. So that that's a kind of global shift and Australia's uh, developments within the Australian welfare state are very much in concert with that global shift. So with the uh, back to the trial of the cashless debit card, what type of research methods were used? So yeah, I um, as I said, I, I became interested in the cashless debit card because it it landed in a place that I was familiar with to to some degree. So the cashless debit card for listeners who are not totally clear, and it can be hard to follow the difference between the basics card and the cashless debit card. So the basics card is introduced into the Northern Territory first as part of the intervention. It's a card, a, a, you know, a very distinctive colour, a lime green card, and it quarant- there's a quarantining that happens. So welfare payments go 50% onto the basics card, in most cases 50% into the recipient's bank account. The basics card was extended to other places, but in a very kind of minimal way. So place-based income management, uh, you know, is extended to other communities in Australia that are not as Indigenous, but really the bulk of people on the basics card are those uh, people in the Northern Territory, Indigenous community members in the Northern Territory who've been on the basics card since. Uh, the intervention, 2007. The cashless debit card is a, a, a kind of, I guess, one one person that I talked to in my research described it as the basics card on roids. It's the it's the basics card sort of pumped up was was what they were trying to communicate to me. So it is different. Uh, it uses different technology. It's different in that it's not as visually striking. It's um, a, a sort of silver or, you know, lead grey, kind of it looks like a a Visa card. Uh, It quarantines more of a Social Security uh, recipient's payment, so it quarantines 80% of a payment onto a card, and the card is barred through the FPOS technology from operating at any gambling outlet, so you can't buy any gambling products and you can't buy alcohol on the card, then 20% of the, the income support payment goes into the bank account and is available to be withdrawn as cash. To, to answer your question about my method of studying this, I mean, I'm very much a sort of, I guess, grounded anthropologist who likes to spend time in a place with people, getting to know them, talking to them about their whole lives, and learning about the everyday effects of, you know, living somewhere where the cashless debit card is being trialled. And so there are four trial sites at present of the cashless debit card, and I worked in 
the first trial site in Sejuna. Now, uh, there's certain restrictions on the card, and, and I suppose it... It makes it very difficult for anybody to buy second-hand goods or shop at op shops where goods are a lot cheaper. And what are some of the other restrictions on the cards? So I think, I mean, it's any shop that installs an FPOS machine can accept the card. And in uh, Sejuna, the op shops, definitely one op shop. I, I'm a, a veteran op shopper myself and I'm... You know, one of the op shops definitely uses the card, uh, uses FPOS technology, so the card can be used. But yes, of course, there is a kind of, you know, a local cash-based market in secondhand goods that cannot be accessed with, with the card. And then there are other events that pop up, local community events in places like that where uh, people are using cash at stalls, at markets, at a fair for example, so that is that that can be that can exclude people from participating in, in local community events such as those. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking with Dr. E. Vincent about welfare reform. So, how are people affected by the cashless debit card? Well, people are affected in a range of ways. I mean, I guess I was very interested in people who are on the card, their analysis of what the card means and what it, what it has come to represent. And I guess, you know, the analysis that I was hearing from people on the card was about feeling punished, that this, was, that this represented a really, you know, a heightening of the punitive dimensions of welfare delivery so that it, that it was an example of punishing the poor as quite a well-known title about welfare reform by the sociologist Loic Laquant describing the US, it's called punishing the poor. And at a really everyday and grounded level, people felt punished and that they were in trouble, that they had been prejudged, that there was a sort of assumption about their life being made. Others really emphasised a sense of having had responsibility taken away from them, a sense that they were being patronised. And and often these are community figures who do a lot of caring for others. So, you know, people have raised big families who are bringing up other children who have a lot of responsibilities that they shoulder and to find that they're being treated as if they can't handle their financial responsibilities is, is you know, really, uh, really great and really angers uh, some of the people I talk to. Yeah, how does, we sort of answered this, but the restrictions on spending, how does that affect the research participants Look, so, you know, I, I documented a lot of people's practical practical problems with the cars, so just instances of the technology failing, instances where, and, and yeah, examples where they knew full well that the card had money in it, but the car was being denied, and a, a very strong sense of kind of shame and self-consciousness when that that did happen to them 
in some cases having experienced practical problems with the card then community members developed a lot of anxiety around being down the street with the card and using the card and in some cases this sort of exacerbated pre-existing anxieties. Yeah, look, I imagine it would. Uh, could you tell us about the Parents Next program? Sure. So uh, to explain, I was doing this work on the cashless debit card and I thought, okay, this is one piece of a, a bigger picture. The bigger picture is to do with, I guess, the state of the welfare state. You know, what else, what are the kind of initiatives uh, are going on that sort of also shed light on this welfare reform period in Australian history. And I became interested in a program called Parents Next. On the face of it, it's intensive support for recipients of parenting payment, either parenting payment partnered, but also and often parenting payment single. So once someone's youngest child is six months old, they may, and there's, a, there's certain criteria, then be sort of mandated to participate in a program called Parents Next. Now, intensive support sounds great for women and 95% and of the people on Parents Next are women. You know, women who are possibly in need of assistance to re-enter the workforce. And I've interviewed women who've said, you know, to me in very humble, straight-up terms, you know, I need help. I need help with where my life is at. That's not true of everyone, but I have talked to women in that situation. However, what they've found often, and I'm still doing these interviews and I'm, you know, it's early stages, but I've talked to women who feel like that what they get is not so much assistance but surveillance and a lot of, I guess, a, a quite onerous expectation around compliance and reporting and when they possibly forget or something happens, you know, I'm sure many listeners will sympathise that life can be chaotic with little children. Something happens, they don't report on time and their payment, which is what they rely upon to feed their families, and provide for their children, their payment is often suspended. It's usually reinstated, which tells us that the Social Security recipient has not been at fault, actually. The review reveals they're not at fault, the payment's reinstated, but that's a weekend or a couple of days where they don't have money in the bank. So what type of activities are they forced to comply with? Yeah, so Parents Next participants uh, work with a provider and often these are for-profit organisations who have an interest in keeping a woman in a program. So sometimes there are cases, there's been, been some really great journalism around Parents Next and reported cases of women not being exempted and exited where they should have been and some interesting accounts from whistleblowers within these for-profit providers. Anyway, women come up with a participation plan with their provider and they can uh, that can include a range of activities, 
such as study, searching for work, and also, and I think probably most controversially so far, parenting activities. So attending a play group, for example, which really is, you know, it teaches us something about a very interventionary welfare state, I think, that has certain ideas around what constitutes good parenting, messages around the, the actual sort of everyday of parenting practices. So what sort of uh, support networks are in place for children with disabilities? Because I have heard that uh, if you have a child who's deaf or has autism, you're still expected to go along to these programs, even though it mightn't be appropriate to have a child with autism going to a playgroup with children that don't have disabilities. Sure. I have not come across cases like that in my research but as I say I'm very much this is research that's happening at the moment but certainly I've found you know a lot of women have a sense that they're being that they're agreeing to activities that that they can't quite fathom how this helps them how this helps them in their relationship with their children how it helps them become more employable, which is the sort of stated goal of the program. In, in fact, what, what they're agreeing to ends up being an imposition and something that, is, that makes life, which is already in many cases challenging, um, a single mother that is in part or in full uh, dependent on social security payments, it's making lives, those lives even harder. It's just creating another sort of difficulty in in their circumstances. So I've interviewed women who describe that to fulfil their obligations to meet with their provider regularly, and, and it varies how regularly, that they've had to spend quite a bit of time and money on petrol to travel uh, to appointments. Um, this is someone I interviewed in a rural area. And, and they weren't getting anything out of these appointments, and they just really were questioning and very frustrated as to why they were required to do this. Yeah, I suppose it's discrimination really, isn't it, against people who are receiving government benefits because if it, if it was a fair system, they'd roll this out and, and say that all parents had to take their children to swimming lessons or play groups, wouldn't they? Well, I guess there's, uh, I mean, I think this is, a key feature of the welfare reform era, a sense that if if someone is in need of assistance, then the state is feels empowered to to kind of set an agenda or have an idea around exactly what they should do in in return for that assistance. And it's not like these conditional welfare regimes. It's not like this is the first time welfare has ever been conditional, but in many ways we're sort of harking back to past eras in which, you know, in the early 20th century when pensions were first legislated for federally in 1908, there were character clauses uh, around, you know, the morality of the applicant. And these sort of New, this new period of welfare reform, 
there, there are echoes of those past kind of conditions attached. I also think there's a complex story here in terms of the cashless debit card where in many ways this is a less discriminatory social security system on the face of it than what we had for most of the 20th century because there were explicit exclusions on the basis of race in a lot of social security legislation. But when it becomes more difficult to discriminate on the basis of race uh, sort of in a very upfront way, then you get these arguments that we're discriminating around behaviour. And some theorists point to the way that in many ways that's an even more interventionary approach. And of course, this is discriminatory on the basis of race. It's just that the language of behaviour is used and, and race is sort of governed through that. that that's, a very, that's a bit of a convoluted um, answer to your question, but I think there's, there's sort of a lot to think through. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to speak about that we haven't already covered? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, that's so great questions, Beth. I sort of feel like I've had my say. Yeah. Okay, thanks very much for coming in today. No worries. And I've been speaking with Dr. E. Vincent about welfare reform. Well, that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company. And do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.